Today, we have an expert in lending and capital markets on the Altco's Mainstream podcast to discuss how his company, Pipe, is building a new asset class. Michal Chiplinski is the chief business officer for Pipe, a fast-growing fintech company. Pipe has seen a rapid rise over the past year. They're one of the fastest fintech companies to reach a $2 billion valuation, and it's in large part because investors see the potential to build a platform that unlocks recurring revenue as an investable asset class for the world's largest institutional investors. Mahal deeply understands the inner workings of credit and lending on both the borrower and lender side, from his experiences helping to build Fundbox, Lending Club, and now Pipe. Pipe was born from the idea that entrepreneurs and companies should be able to grow their businesses on their terms without taking debt or dilution. This was a fascinating discussion with someone who has seen the evolution of a number of lending platforms over the years in fintech. Michal and I discussed lessons learned from building marketplace fintech businesses, how Pipe is empowering founders to adopt a trader mentality by unlocking recurring revenue as an asset class, how Pipe is creating an efficient way for companies to turn their predictable revenue streams into a way to access capital without sacrificing dilution, how Pipe is building out the buy side and sell sides of their marketplace, how Pipe handles churn on SaaS contracts of their sell-side borrowers, and how he thinks about the evolution of Pipe as a platform in terms of the types of assets you would pipe, and how any sort of recurring revenue stream, whether it be ISPs, streaming services, even private equity or venture fund management fees, could end up being piped. Thanks, Mahal, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. We hope you enjoy. We're going mainstream. Mahal, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Michael, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Good. How are you? Good, good. So today is May 25th. We announced our huge unicorn round last week. So feeling good, feeling very, very good. That's great. Well, it's a pretty big milestone, huge for the space and an incredibly rapid rise, which I'm excited to discuss. But before we get into the inner workings of Pipe and all the things that you can do with this new round of capital, would love to get into your fascinating journey to Pipe. You've worked as a lawyer, you've worked at two different fintech startups. You know, Tell us about your journey. We'd love to hear it. I feel it that throughout my whole career, that has been a culmination of experiences leading me up to Pipe. A lot of the investors that invested in Pipe invested in one of my previous startups, Fundbox, and they all say that it's a continuous reiteration and improvement of the previous ideas. At both Fundbox and Lending Club, I learned a lot about building marketplaces. So when I came to build the foundation for Pipe, I knew we had to take a different approach. Fundbox is a leading B2B fintech lender, and Lending Club is the largest personal lender in the U.S. and probably one of the largest in the world and one of the first peer-to-peer fintech lenders. All of these experiences from Fundbox, which was B2B, to Lending Club, which was consumer, but at a massive, massive scale, millions upon millions of borrowers, that would let me to build the knowledge base and as well the experience to be able to launch Pipe. And, you know, Pipe is a two-sided trading platform that allows issuers 
any company with recurring revenue streams, and we can go into detail as to what I mean by that, and investors, nowadays institutional investors, banks, hedge funds, sovereign funds, pension plans, to come together and on one side access capital on their turn, and on the other side invest in a new asset class, the recurring revenue. So that's fascinating. Before we get into the inner workings of Pipe, what were some of the things that you learned building marketplace businesses that maybe were challenging at either Funbox or Lending Club that you've tried to do differently at Pipe? Building a, a marketplace is building two companies at the same time. And that's the first challenge that people need to understand. That's the reason why marketplaces like Uber, when you have a driver and a rider, are so highly valued by a marketplace and so difficult actually to replicate because you have to build two companies with two different sets of users, two different types of complexities at the same time. And you can't build one and then build the other one. You actually have to build them all at the same time. That is the most challenging thing about building marketplaces. The fact that you're building two startups at once. So with Pipe, walk us through the mechanics of the platform and the marketplace dynamics that you have. You mentioned that you have SaaS companies on one side and you have buyers of SaaS contracts effectively on the other side, institutional investors who want access to debt as an asset class. So walk us through both sides of your marketplace and how you've gone about building both sides of the marketplace up. So we have two sides of the marketplace. On one side, we have sellers, issuers, and on the other side, we have buyers, the institutional capital. Let's start with the sellers. Pipe, when Harry, Josh, and Zane and I started Pipe, we started with the lowest hanging fruit, just like the lemon tree behind me. It was SaaS B2B. But the reality of it is that from the very beginning, we knew that we are going after any recurring revenues. We launched the platform in beta at the end of February 2020, full release July 2020. So we're talking May 25th. Uh, it hasn't been uh, even 10 months since we launched. Even right now, a third of our issuers are not SaaS. They are other recurring revenue companies. We have very quickly expanded into direct-to-consumer subscription brands. But right now, we have also venture capital management fees traded, gym subscriptions traded. We have property management fees traded on the platform. We just did our first, first deal with a major football club where they have piped transfer fees between two football clubs for a very renowned player in Europe. That is the core of Pipe. Michael, Pipe is any recurring revenues. As long as your company has a predictable recurring revenue stream, you should look into Pipe. And on the buy side, and I know we're jumping, but on the buy side, we're talking about banks, hedge funds, pension plans that for years have been looking to diversify their exposure from equities and that typically would go into fixed income. But as anybody listening to your podcast knows, 60-40 portfolio is dead and fixed income unfortunately moves the same direction as equities. 
So that diversification that equities has, that fixed income has provided is harder to achieve. That's the reason, if you think about it, what's the real quintessential reason be, before large hedge funds like Tiger, um, D1, Third Point, going into venture? It's actually to provide that diversification and the hedge for another side of the market that tends to move the same direction, both equities and fixed income. But think of, from the investors, think of how they view Pipe. They view it as the most closely correlated to fixed income, but interestingly enough, without having any of the correlation to the equity. Let me give you an example. If you and I were to invest, let's say, let's pick a big IPO over the last year plus Snowflake, yes? Let's say we invest a uh, million dollars in Snowflake IPO. And at the same time, we purchase $100,000 on the buy side. We as an institutional investor, let's mm-hmm. say we both manage a hedge fund, Michael and Michal, pure alpha <laughs> return M&M hedge, hedge fund. <laughs> yes, M&M pure alpha. <laughs> <laughs> we invest in an IPO, but we also know that, you know, I, I love Snowflake, don't get me wrong, but a lot of tech companies go within the per- first year or two years, go through a dip. You and I, as a hedge fund managers, need to cover the dip in case the redemptions come at that time. As a result, I need to hedge my exposure. How the heck do I hedge Snowflake? Well, what if I invest in Snowflake's contracts, that $100,000, we invest in Snowflake recurring revenue contracts. We do some leverage three to five times. We add some options on it. And when Snowflake equity price dip, the options and leverage kick in and we've got the going up because the price of the contract, when you purchased it on January 1st, it's the same. It's stable. You can actually build a full portfolio on top of it and hatch your equity or fixed income exposure that fluctuate. The price of the contracts doesn't change. If you sign up for a year of Snowflake services, it is hundred of something, let's say hundred dollars. It is fixed. You pay it each month or each quarter. That is your fixed price. It doesn't fluctuate. And you can add every single derivative on top of it to achieve your hedge. So that's one of the use cases on the buy side. But to be honest, majority right now use cases is to hold and get a very stable return, risk-adjusted return. That is unbelievable when it comes to the risk that portfolio presents. You know, Harry and I, when we started talking with the investors, we actually didn't know, but it was part of our thesis that these contracts should perform better than anything else. We kind of saw it, but we didn't know that one of the largest private equity firms in the world, Vista Equity Partners, was launched on one of the theses that Robert Smith has said publicly that Software contracts are better than first lien debt. Exactly. Let's unpack that a little bit, because I think that gets to the kind of underpinnings of why you're building pipe. And then we can get back to the investor side, because I do want to understand how investors are thinking about this from the perspective of how they view this asset within their asset allocation. Is this fixed income, et cetera? But I think to understand that side of the equation, we need to understand the underpinnings of software contracts being better than first lien debt. So walk us through 
what that really means to you and then how that's driven and informed the underpinnings of building pipe. So the recurring revenues that are traded on platform provide an extremely stable and risk-adjusted return to the buy side. It's highly predictable. If you look at the definition of what fixed income is, fixed income is a highly predictable uh, asset. That is what Pi, at the time of purchasing as an investor, a recurring revenue stream on Pipe's platform, you know what it's going to yield throughout the yield, throughout the, t- the tenor of it, which is anywhere from six to 12 months. We have some longer contracts right now, which we're testing, but our bread and butter right now is six to 12 month contracts. And then how do you think about when a SaaS contract, effectively when one of the customers, the purchaser of that SaaS contract on the customer side churns, right? So there's a seller of SaaS, so Salesforce sells SaaS products, and then somebody decides to no longer purchase that Salesforce software as a service revenue. So they churn out. What happens when on your platform when people are dealing with churned out contracts that they can no longer finance in a sense? Michael, that, that's a very good question. And that was the, one of the first quintessential uh, issues that we had to resolve. How to deal with churn. Churn is inherent to SaaS businesses and to any recurring revenue business. So if a customer churns before the typical, the 12-month period that you traded, that customer has two options. They can rebate the capital they received upfront on a prorated basis for the churn period with no penalties or fees. So what you're rebating is only the principal. Think of it, it's acting as a free credit at that point. So zero cost capital for the churned period, or which would majority of our customers do, if not all, Pipe can auto swap another contract of an equal or greater value to cover the rebate of the churn customer. So the way it kind of works, the two options are there, but the way it kind of works, all of our customers pick the auto swap so that on a continuous basis when our system, because remember, we are connected to the recurring revenue subscription management system. When our system detects that the, that the customer of, of which the subscriptions were traded churned, it automatically swaps it for a new one. So it's this seamless experience for our customers. To be honest, majority of our investors have diversification requirements. So they pick, I would like to invest only X amount of capital in each and a given issuer. I would like to only invest in North America. I would like to only invest in certain sectors. There are some that have very big diversification requirements, which is meaning like very wide, I would rather say, which is effectively speaking none. There are some that are very restricted. What's beautiful about Pipe is that if you invest in a typical credit fund, your diversification requirements are that of the credit fund. And they're never yours. And as big as you are, you will never pick what are those diversification. It's the choice of Cerberus, Ares, Fortress, and they're very good at that. But Pipe is an option for investors that want to go even more granular. No, I would like to invest only in SaaS B2B or only in non-SaaS recurring revenues. And I would like to only invest in outside of the US. And I would like to only invest X amount in each and every issuer. 
the level of granularity that can be achieved, Michael, is unparalleled without any, in any of the other credit space. So on that point, how much do you think investors actually want to pick at the asset level? I mean, you, you saw this with Lending Club, and I think many platforms, investment platforms in the alt space or alternative credit space go through this, where initially Lending Club started out as peer-to-peer -peer in the sense, but it was really individual investors picking specific loans that they'd want to underwrite effectively. But then over time, that changed, and they had an auto-invest product, then they had an institutional product, Lending Club Advisors, then they kind of went to more traditional kind of pools of capital with credit facilities. And you're seeing many platforms in the alt space start out with individual single asset selection, but then over time build structured products. How do you think about that, given you have highly sophisticated investors in your platform institutions, which is different from maybe a lending club or some of these other platforms? But I think it's still a, a worthwhile question to unpack. Um, uh, as we all know, Lending Club started as a peer-to-peer -peer lender with a large retail platform. My whole time spent at Lending Club was acquiring a bank and interestingly enough, exiting the retail side of the business. <laughs> and shortly after I joined Pipe, Lending Club announced that it exited its retail business altogether. Pipe right now on the buy side, it's institutional capital. Banks, hedge funds, pension plans, private wealth management units of the banks and family offices. As we grow, we are in extensive conversations with largest uh, mutual fund providers in the world that are looking at building ETFs that could invest in pipe, in contracts on pipe trading platform. So what I will tell you, Michael, Retail is a path as well, but it's not going to be a direct one, at least in an initial stages of uh, Pipe. Well, you're talking about something that I've, as building two of these platforms as well, more in the kind of alternative credit space mosaic on the solar side, but then iCapital. I think many of these platforms, you bang your head against the wall trying to start on the individual side. And it's not to say that that's not a very important piece of the platform. And I think Lending Club, it was a large part of their story, right? That was how they got things going, providing access to alternative credit. But I think what you're getting to is where many of these platforms go, which is they undergo kind of an arc of institutionalization over time. You just started there right from the beginning. And maybe that goes back to some of the lessons learned, but some of the buy side that you have is really some of the largest asset owners or pools of assets in the world. So giving them access to this as an asset class really should grease the wheels for the platform and make things scale really quickly. That's true. And look, that's my experience from the Bank of New York Mellon Wealth Management. When I managed assets for at the height of it, I had $780 billion assets under management. It's a mind-blowing amount when you think about it. Most of it was from sovereigns and pension plans. So uh, interestingly enough, when you talk to representatives of ADIA, ADEC, KIC, Mudal, or the government pension plan of Norway, which are the largest asset allocators in the world, they don't typically allocate directly. They have to go into credit space. They have to go to credit funds. And albeit these are great options. They seek diversification from them and also an ability to avoid the 2 and 20 fees that these funds charge. Pipe gives them two things. A, they can construct, just like we discussed, a portfolio of their own. It's not 
a box of a credit fund. It's their own portfolio. And two, there are no 220 fees. It's a pipe. The only fees the pipe charges is like any trading platform. Uh, it charges a trading fee, which is a very tiny percentage of, of every single trade on the buy side and sell side. And that's that's also the second thing. Pipe is very, very aligned with both sides. What I like to call Pipe is a fintech 2.0. The fintech 1.0 had a cost basis of a capital. That was the warehouse line. Meaning my best customer had to be at that price or, or otherwise I would be losing money on, on day one. So I couldn't. So I had to charge at the minimum cost of that warehouse line. Pipe has no cost of capital. Pipe does not touch the assets. We're just announcing there in a recent launch, one of the largest Japanese bank conglomerates had made a significant strategic investment in Pipe. Well, what are the yields for these banks that they seek? If they get a 1%, they're happy. Like It's unimaginable. If I go to any of the fintechs in America and tell them my cost of capital is 1% for certain sets of sellers on the platform, it's it's unobtainable what was uh, for, the, for anybody. What was the key insight that made you go the route of building this marketplace rather than try to have customers kind of, you know, like maybe just be like a non-dilutive financing provider and, and just serving the sell side, which are the, the SaaS companies, or finding a way to just serve the buy side, which are investors into alternative credit products? I think it was the, what I just touched upon. It was the realization that um, even my best customers at FinTech 1.0 would be charge a certain minimum cost of capital. That would be my warehousing line. Anybody in that business, my previous places, competitors, new ones coming in, they always start with raising a warehouse debt line from major providers like Victor Park Capital, Jeffries. There are a lot of folks that do it, Fortress, and they're very good at that. But the problem is that you can't really scale or at least I believe you can't really scale because your best customers would be charged the minimum that warehouse line, which is, you know, high single digits, but typically mid double digits for commercial credit. I wanted to create a platform whereby I could sell Salesforce, uh, mid-size company, I don't know, Twilio, I could search a newcomer Snowflake on the pu- public markets, and then I could serve pre-IPO, mid-tier, uh, around CD and AB, an early stage company, or non-venture capital. When you think about it, there isn't a way of doing it unless you create a full democratized access to capital markets to all of these customers. Because the capital markets will come at any point. There will be a buyers that will only buy best credit possible at obviously lower yield. But there will be buy side participants that are only interested in younger companies as a result carrying additional risk of execution and hand, but carrying better yields. You can construct the portfolios on pipe in a way that's unimaginable before. That's why we're, we are a trading platform. It's no different than NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. 
When you go to NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange, you, Michael, you can construct your portfolio. You can build it with blue chip companies, the Googles of the world. And you can also go for the younger companies that will provide you better yield over time, but are riskier when it comes to execution. It's the same thing. So are you basically saying that the marketplace model creates a better form of price discovery for both sides. For the buy side, obviously, they can get better yields in certain cases, but take on more risk. And also, importantly, for the companies who are sellers of SaaS contracts, that they are able to have better price discovery and the free market should actually give them lower cost of capital as they grow their business and are able to effectively front their SaaS contracts? That's correct. On average, our contracts trade 90 to 95 uh, cents on the dollar with an average being 92 to 95. Pipe is aligned with the sellers on the platform in more ways than people realize because we actually want to bring that uh, rate to 99 cents on the dollar. All that Pipe takes is a trading fee, which is irrespective of the rate charged by the buy side. What Pipe is interested is in as much of a liquidity and trading on a platform. The only way to achieve that liquidity and trading on a platform is having more and more assets trading on the platform. How do you get more assets to be trading on a platform? By having that uh, bid price as high as possible. And that is our goal. So we are super aligned with the sell side of the platform. And we will be, our singular focus is to bring diversified buy side at any level so that I could achieve the nirvana, which is the 99 cents on the dollar. And I think there is a lot of companies in that could get that rate. And that's really just due to whatever the market sets the price at. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. It's Pipe Pipe doesn't set the price. Pipe provides rating to the buy side. So we help the buy side understand the assets, but Pipe doesn't set the price. We have competitive bids going on every single minute on the platform. We have literally hundreds of the buy side participants. We have thousands on the sell side. So we have bids going at the same time. They're all algorithmic bids and the best price wins at any time. How important is it, do you think, to provide data to the buy side? And as you think about greasing the wheels of marketplace liquidity, because this may be a space that, yes, people understand and underwrite when they're investing. Ironically, they're investing into the equity of these companies in either public or private markets. So they understand the mechanics and dynamics of, of SaaS contracts and SaaS revenues. Bessemer does a great job with how they think Fantastic about like job. cloud yeah. index and looking at all different companies. But there really isn't a ton of market data in the same way that you'd think about ratings for either like on the fixed income side for SaaS company contracts. So how do you think about the development of that as you build out the platform? Together with Churn, that was another quintessential innovation that we have brought to the market. We have to figure it out how to build confidence of the buy side into the investing into these uh, recurring revenue streams and into the platform. In order for the sell side to trade on the platform, you need to connect three data sources. It takes two minutes, bank account, recurring revenue subscription manager, so the way you build your customers and your accounting software. Three data sources, three minutes. 
out of this on an anonymized basis, we actually pull the data of a company. We anonymize the name of the company, but we create a picture of that company. And on top of it, we add ratings. Buy side buys into this ratings, understanding not only we fully disclose the ratings methodology. So that was another thing. A lot of companies tried hiding their rating methodology because, of, honestly speaking, there were a lot of subjective criteria in it. Greensill is a perfect example. Alternative, alternative data, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Alternative data, which meant somebody sitting in front of a computer and making an alternative decision. There isn't anybody at Pipe that makes a decision. All data is objective. It's data. And if it fits in the ranges, it fits into the rating. There are no subjective criteria in Pipe. That is an important thing to note. And by side, understanding how we created the ratings, they trust the ratings at that point because they understand it's unaltered. Mm -hmm. Totally agree on that point. However, as, as you know from dealing with SaaS companies, and, and I've seen this from the investing side, is that at times it can be hard and in traditional SaaS world, it can be hard to predict churn until it actually happens. And that may actually happen at the end of the renewal period. So that may happen at the end of 12 months. People may be unsatisfied with the actual experience with that software provider uh, or that product. And I think oftentimes, like as investors into SaaS companies, we try to think about how do we actually make sure that we prevent churn beforehand by having great customer service, great product, all that kind of stuff. But it can be hard to tell when, when a customer of a SaaS product may actually churn out. Is there any way that you're able to help the buy side understand that? Because effectively, that, that is a risk that they're underwriting but may not see until it's too late. So two things. What you mentioned, Michael, is the biggest difference between equity investing and investing on a pipe platform. You actually need to look at the multi-year horizon and verify, okay, I, I know that I have a customer. You start your analysis on an equity side by doing exactly what we do, which is looking at the performance of the contracts. The thing is that we stop at this because all that is traded on the platform are those recurring revenue streams. You're looking into multi-year horizon. And as a result, need to worry about, okay, will the contract get renewed after 12 months? Is the product good enough to stay in uh, competition? Our investors on the buy side don't have to worry about that because they purchased an existing contract or recurring revenue stream for 12 months. These are not future contracts. These are booked and existing recurring revenue streams. As a result, they know that for 12 months, they're going to be clipping the coupon, the receiving the payments out of this contract. What they do following 12 months, if there are no more contracts available from that company, your case scenario, which you say, and people start churning, then not only the company will drop in ratings on our platform, but the buy side may choose to invest in another company that made it work. You mentioned that there's different software products that you're hooking into, bank account, accounting software, things like that. How much is Pipe a right time, right place business in the sense that 
this may not have been possible five or 10 years ago, because I don't think fintech companies nor investors necessarily thought they could hook up to all of these different platforms and get the data they need to be able to build a business like this. I think there are two answers to this. First of all, on the founder side, more philosophical answer to it. You have more and more of second-time founders that are funding multiple companies or are an executive at multiple companies. Think of the CEO of Snowflake. Uh, it's a perfect example. Great career at several SaaS companies. They've learned one thing. Equity means dilution. There is a place for equity, which is early stage, pre-product market fit. Perfect space for the equity to play. But once you have a rinse and repeat organization, and all that you need is really a capital infusion in order to grow your business, Pipe is a much better solution to it. Because Pipe is non-dilutive financing that is available to founding teams. On the other hand, debt. There is also a space for debt, but debt comes with significant restrictions. There are many banks that would prevent you from using any other financial services product, any other bank account, card that is not provided by their bank. And let's be frank, no bank or no financial services institution is the best at all. They may be best at one, but that doesn't mean that they're best at all. And as a result, you don't understand how much you're restricting yourself building the company when taking venture debt. There are also significant financing restrictions, minimum capital in the bank account, use case of the money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and huge prepayment penalties. As a result, you married to the venture debt lender for quite some time. Again, there's a space to it. I would say early stage pre-product market fit as well. But once you're having rinse and repeat product where you can predict your recurring revenue, Pipe is the solution. Interesting. So then I guess let, let's take this to where you think the platform goes over time. So you mentioned some of these other types of recurring revenue assets that you have on your platform. But let's take the chains off of our imagination. Like, where does this go? This is such a massive, massive idea. How, how do you think about where you start, but then where you end up? Well, I, I, I think a lot of people wonder, how was it possible for a startup that launched nine, 10 months ago to achieve two plus billion dollar valuation? And the reason is that vision. So every single thing is or can be a recurring revenue. SaaS is just the beginning. We have direct-to-consumer subscription platforms. We have uh, property management fees. We will have hotel rooms recurring revenue trading on the platform. We have venture capital and private equity management fees trading on the platform. We actually have right now one of the largest telcos from the Gulf trading its tele telecommunication contracts on the platform. In the future, I see my two daughters, Clara and Lilo, trading their salaries on the platform for upfront cash to buy their home, house, or whatever they want. That is the real breadth of the platform. Whether it's commercial or consumer, 
whatever it is, as long as it's predictable, can be traded on the platform. And what Pipe really did, if you think about it, and that's the concept that I love talking to our investors because they not only they provide amazing guidance, but they also show us the, the scope of what we have created. If you think about Pipe, Pipe really is going after debt. And debt, together with religions and several other things, is a quintessential to our civilization as homo sapiens. There's this perfect book, Debt, the first 5,000 years of humanity. I applaud everybody to read it. It's a long one, 700 pages. But it will show to everybody how quintessential that was in us as a civilization. What Pipe is actually going is like Uber reinvented car ownership or car travel. Airbnb reinvented leisure uh, travel and hotel business. Pipe is reinventing debt. The, the thing is that that is a core to us as a civilization. What we will provide as Pipe is an access from any company size. And we have companies as small as 100K in ARR, as big as several hundred million in ARR, as small as private, as big as publicly traded companies on the sell side. Any size can access directly capital markets. No more going to banks, credit funds, and any other financial solutions. How much do you think there will have to be a shift in the way that investors think about things? And, and also companies as well, as they think about the different ways in which they can access capital. Do you think people understand what Pipe is doing and why this is so different for them in terms of how they think about if they're a company growing their business? And as investors, I think all investors have to think about this. Capital allocators have to think about this from the debt side. VCs have to think about this from the equity side, how they may have to now work in tandem with a Pipe rather than try to do a larger equity round, right? So there's so many implications and knock-on second-order effects for both sides. So A, do you think people understand this? And B, then I want to get into like, what does this do to the impact of all these different industries? All right. So let's start with the first. I, I, I get this question so a lot from our investors. I actually answer it in, in, the, in the following way because I, I truly believe in it. I watched early stages of Uber and early stages of Airbnb. Their challenge was educational, which is what you're mentioning as well. Uber was... How can I get people comfortable with taking stranger people's cars on Airbnb? How, how do I get people comfortable staying in other people's homes that may be located across the world? And, and how do I create that people consider it, it, it normal? That educational challenge was almost vertical. It's extremely difficult. But guess what? The moment you educate that this is a choice, it plateaus fully. Now, you don't question anymore ordering an Uber. I remember when Uber was starting, I was like, why not I just call my guy uh, and order uh, a black car or I'm never going to fly to Colombia and stay in a stranger person's home. Now, I just did a trip over Christmas with my whole family. That educational challenge ends. And that's the beauty of that. So the same with Pipe. The moment the market, both on the sell side and the buy side, realizes that a recurring revenue is an asset class, and we have a massive adoption right now from 
So this is only a question of time of educating people about the third option. Right now you had venture debt or equity. Pipe comes in. It's just a question of time. To answer your second question, already we have large venture debt providers coming to Pipe and asking to partner because they're realizing there's a space for them, there's a space for us. The same with on the investment side. There isn't a day when partners at large and small venture capital firms coming to us and saying, I would like to connect you to my portfolio company. They may find a use case for Pipe. Pipe actually helps them with capital stock. So when you think about it from the venture capital mindset, you are able to prop up the company prior to any fundraising rounds, prior to IPO in the ways that are actually best for the company. Venture capital should be recommending Pipe and many do. Interesting. So you think that this is not necessarily a shock to the system for venture capital, but if if VCs figure out how to partner with the likes of Pipe, then this actually will work out and will bring the industry forward and, to your point, help companies as well, because they will then have to dilute themselves less. Exactly. When you think about it, the the era of staying private for 10 plus years, which was the, the previous decade, was caused by the equity fundraising grants, a continuous stream of capital. And, and everybody knows that once you go public, it actually provides much better return for investors. So staying private for such a long time, when you really look at the data, is not that great for investors. Investors would like to obtain the liquidity faster. Public markets provide a better markup on their investments and add liquidity. Pipe provides the financing to compress that period so that you don't have to go through the alphabet of rounds from the C's, D's, E's, and E's, F's. You can actually compress it, provide enough of the funding to the company to grow without uh, diluting the funders and without also affecting the company's EBITDA because Pipe actually sits below the line. As a result, it doesn't affect the market standing or capital market standing of these companies. Interesting. And then I want to touch on the education piece, which you talked about a little bit, but I think Pipe is a great example of, to some extent, this new idea of building in public. And you've done an incredible job as a B2B business, no less, of building a brand and leveraging social media to talk about what you're doing, acquire customers, maybe say provocative things at times, but that's, to your point, what educates kind of both the buy and sell side about this. So why has that worked so well? And what made you decide to go the route of, particularly for a B2B business, being so active, talking about your business on social media platforms? Michael, I think what's been key uh, to our success regarding building a brand and on social media is honestly my business partner, Harry. Transparent and unapologetically himself when speaking to founders on Twitter. It is actually resonating. Truth and clarity in financial services products is rare, and Pipe is clear and transparent. That connection between us and the founders and realizing we are actually there to help them grow and our interest is aligned, we don't have a minimum cost of capital. We're not recycling debt. We're connecting them directly with the capital markets. Ultimately, what we're providing is a way for founders 
to grow exponentially without debt or dilution. So the main foundation of what we're building really resonates. And on the buy side, investors are looking for yield. Our um, narrative just beautifully aligns on both ends. It's been fascinating to see you both be so active directly with the end consumer, which in some cases could be the companies on your platform on the sell side, on other cases with the investors. But what you've also done really well is you've also built out a very big strategic investor group, groups like Shopify, like you mentioned, HubSpot, Okta, Slack, I think have all invested in Pipe as well. So how have you thought about building out that side of the business and adding strategically crucial industry players to the business to help you build out the platform? Michael, we have created a global trading platform for the new asset class, the recurring revenue. We look at the world in a very similar way to our strategic investors like Shopify, HubSpot, Okta, Slack. They are providing tools to enable entrepreneurship and help companies grow. That's what Pipe does. In being so aligned in our missions, we felt it was important to bring together these large players into one investment round with the goal to provide access to growth capital for the millions of customers they collectively serve and together build a healthier financial ecosystem for uh, companies. That's, no, that, that's fascinating. I think that's a great place to end before asking the final question, which is, what is your favorite or most interesting alt investment and why? Uh, so I'm an early investor in Robinhood and irrespective of the you know recent issues, it is a fantastic product that democratizes access to equity markets for investors of all size. I only invest in companies that create categories. Robinhood, just like Pipe, created a category. It allowed investors at no cost invest in equity markets. Pipe is bringing a new asset class, recurring revenues. When you invest in visionaries, beautiful things happen and categories are created. So I, I urge all angel investors to invest in visionaries. Well, they may want to invest on the pipe platform too at some point. You're gonna to have to figure out how to open this up to, to individual investors. <laughs> yes. Because you, you, you need to have a diversified portfolio. You can't just invest in equity or <laughs> equity, equity correlated uh, securities. You have to be able to invest in debt too. So yes. <laughs> sky is the limit. When it comes to pipe, sky is the limit. And uh, we're also creating an ecosystem of tools around pipe to enable companies trade and build their companies to trade on the platform. More to come about this, but Pipe is a massive ecosystem company that we will be building around ourselves. That, that's fantastic. You really laid out what a massive vision that you're trying to achieve here and, and how important this is for both the sell side and the buy side. This is so, so massive for companies of all types and entrepreneurs. It could be individuals too. I know you've mentioned writers. Why can't writers get piped, right? There's all sorts of things where recurring revenue streams that, that you can just transform different industries, which is fascinating to see. And then obviously on the investor side, there's so much capital that probably is excited to be accessing these various products, industries, and end customers. So it's fantastic. Mahal, thanks so much for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. 
Thank you very much for having me, Michael. It's it's one of the podcasts that I always listen. So keep it going. Keep it going, buddy. Absolutely will. Thanks, Mihal. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites. And you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at Goes Alt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going